Take your Bible and turn to Job chapter 4 as we have a lengthy period or a piece of scripture. Today I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, one of the challenges of preaching Job, as I understand this book, and I think most do, is that um, the vast majority of it's wrong <laughs> uh, in the sense of it's poor counsel from his friends, which is what we're going to be looking at today. God's word, good for us, useful and profitable in every way. Um, here in just an interesting, interesting sort of fashion. Job chapter 4. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many. You've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it's come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I've seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap it, reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. Dread came upon me in trembling, which made all my bones shake. The spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up, stood still. But I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants he puts no trust in his angels. He charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up from within them? Do they not die, and that without wisdom? Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, we thank you that your word is good, every piece of it. If it's profitable for raising up the people of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that now that your spirit would work in our hearts 
to use your word, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. I don't know if you saw the headline this week. Team of scientists working in, uh, I think it was up in Antarctica, uh, measuring uh, subatomic particles, specifically measuring neutrinos, uh, these uh, tiny particles that travel at insane speeds so uh, fast that it's difficult to measure, uh, found some data that was a bit strange. And so they reported uh, their findings that the data was a bit strange, uh, and they're going to have to kind of figure out why it doesn't line up with any of the math. One of those kind of great moments where uh, they've been doing theory for uh, two decades, and then when it comes time to actually figure out how to measure it, they realize, oh, our theory is really, really wrong. The part that made it so interesting, though, is that uh, they published, you know, kind of made a statement about it, and a magazine picked it up and reported it with roughly this headline, NASA detects alternate universe moving backwards in time. They presented this as if the study had been completed and that the team had actually discovered mathematical proof that there's an alternate universe where time moves backwards. The same things that happen there, happen here, happen there backwards. It went viral. Again, if you're in science type circles or your social media or anything of the sort, I got the headline from at least probably 12 different newspapers this week. The best part is that it's completely 100% untrue. It's absolutely untrue. In fact, actually, it's so untrue that within 36 hours, the team that had been doing the original uh, survey and such had to come out and be like, no, that's not what we said. That's not at all what we said. In fact, you took what we said and you misconstrued it to do something different. We said this... You turned it into that. The challenge with preaching the book of Job, again, as I understand the book, is the substantial middle portion of it is, in essence, that right there. God says this, and his friends take it and turn it into that. And this and that are not the same. It's a challenge because we have chapter after chapter after chapter of his friends speaking and Job responding and his friends speaking and Job responding and his friends speaking and Job responding and his friends speaking incorrectly. As you remember, Job is a good man. He's, in fact, actually not a good man. He's a great man. Holy and righteous, the Lord even comments twice in the first two chapters, Job's without sin. And for God's statement to be uh, leveled like that, he's a, he's a good fellow. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but he is righteous by uh, the standards in which he's living. And uh, as a result of that, he's accused by Satan and uh, the devil even going so far as to say, look, the only reason he loves you, God, is because uh, of the good things you give him. And all those things are removed through various divine catastrophes. Again, a mighty wind blows down his house and kills all his kids. Uh, And now he's left. 
The rest of the book is kind of picking up the pieces. What, what do I do? What does Job do now that everything's been taken away? He's lost his tremendous wealth. He's lost his children, which were the uh, prize of his heart. He's uh, lost his, even his own health, and he's been sitting on top of the garbage heap, uh, scraping his, his oozing and festering and rotting sores with a piece of pottery. And here as we come to chapter 4, we continue his, or begin his conversation with his four friends. And I want to be careful that we address this from the, from the beginning. These friends are not bad friends. They, they sometimes are kind of incorrectly presented that way. These guys have gone and sat with Job for a week before they said anything. And again, I, I, I mean... I love you guys. I'm not going to go sit at the top of the you know, York County dump with you for a week and grieve with you. These guys have. They've sat with him in mourning. They've been next to him. They've been with him. They've grieved with him. They've had great sorrow with him. And now they go to speak. In fact, actually, there's four friends. We're going to look at really three of them today. And there's a a neat kind of structure to how the book uh, is laid out. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And uh, they each speak, and then Job responds. And they speak, and Job responds, and they speak, and then Job responds. And you kind of get, they're they're rotating through Eliphaz, then uh, Bildad, then Zophar. Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Zophar, Job. Um, but it doesn't complete. You can kind of see as each cycle progresses, it gets a little bit sharper and a little bit less pleasant and a little bit less cordial, even to the point where the last speech, the ninth speech that you would expect to be, there isn't because the conversation has broken down. In fact, you get to see as they talk through these 20, 23 chapters, their conversation gets increasingly less cordial as it goes to the point where they're not entirely on speaking terms by the end. And it's a challenge. And so, okay, so what, what is the issue at hand? And I think there's really kind of, like I said, one major point that they, they, they do incorrectly. They have a good understanding of who God is in many ways. They understand uh, his character in many ways. In fact, actually, kind of in parts, even lecture Job with the very character of who God is. Their primary problem is this. They assume the mind of God. And because they've assumed the mind of God, they overreach. They overstep. They they overplay their hand. They go too far because they assume they know, excuse me, they know what God is thinking. And because they know what God is thinking, they're able to then explain his thoughts to Job. We're going to very quickly look at kind of five different ways that they do this throughout this portion. First, and this is, I think, perhaps the clearest of them all, is in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 4. Eliphaz here is, he's explaining, um, well, it's 12 through 16, but as he's explaining to Job, this is, I think, showcases the heart of what's going on, is he's explaining to Job what Job needs to be thinking and feeling. 
If you paid attention, and granted that poetry is not the easiest for those that don't read poetry regularly to understand, he begins uh, chapter 4 with praising Job. Look, Job, you're a good dude. I like you. Uh, Verse 3, look, your words have been used to shore up and strengthen many. You've been used to be an encouragement to all kinds of people. Your words have made firm feeble knees in chapter 4. I mean, in verse 4, that's that's a really kind thing to say. Look, you, you, you have been so encouraging to your neighbor. But now it's time for you to be encouraged. You've been grieving for a week. Now it's time for you to hear what God has to say. And it's intriguing that kind of at the core of Eliphaz's first statement is verses 12 through 16. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Now, he goes on to tell the experience here of of engaging with some sort of kind of spirit of a kind wherein he's received special knowledge. And it's debated, and honestly, I don't think we can fully tell if he's describing a real experience or if he's kind of poetically trying to explain his understanding of, of relationship with wisdom and God's truth. But it is intriguing how the verbiage of what he says. Job, it's time for you to listen. And you need to listen to me because I've been given a special word. I was given a special word. I was given right there in the silence. I heard a voice. I was given a special understanding of truth. And it's intriguing that that's going to be the theme that runs throughout the book. And in fact, actually, Job's interactions with his friends, it breaks down and it gets increasingly ugly, largely because this is the point the friends have to say is, we know this situation better than you do, Job, because we have clearer insight because we've been given truth. Eliphaz is going to, we're going to look in the other ways here in a moment, but he's going to to be fairly stern with Job. Bildad gets worse, Zophar gets much sharper. I mean, I'm I'm telling you, this this breaks down so badly. By the middle speech, Eliphaz actually insults Job by calling him a belly full of wind, if you know what I'm saying. Right? That's some stern language in Bible talk to say, look, even though you're grieving... You know, I'm going to compare your words actually to, to bodily functions, friend. Is, they're getting increasingly impolite, but it's intriguing. This is the point Job pushes back on. Who are you to say you know? Who are you to say that you have understanding, that you've been given this revelation? That's unique to you. And this is, uh, in my humble opinion, I think this is the single biggest distinction inside Christianity. It's not the, the Calvinism-Arminianism discussion. It's actually not even Protestant-Catholic discussion. Uh, I think it goes back even further than that. and goes even further back to, to origin, where it says the major division in Christianity, the thing that kind of ends up sorting out all Christians of any kind is... Do we believe God has spoken his fullness in his word or do we not? 
Do we believe that God has spoken the fullness of his word, the fullness of what he has to say in his Bible, or do we not? Do we believe that this is everything that's needful and useful for Christian living, or do we need more than that? Origen, I kind of push at him, but Origen was one of those that said uh, we have uh, an, an ability to have direct access, unmediated direct access to the divine so that we are able to understand truth apart from the Bible. Augustine and other Christians later would push back and say, well, no, that's, that's not for us to know. Calvin would go so far as describe human knowledge like a house. There's two floors. It's all of God's house. That's all knowledge. All humans are invited to the first floor. Come in, hang out, get to know everything that God has said and explained. The secret things, however, belong to him. You're not welcome on the second floor. That's God's part. You don't get to go there. You don't have direct access to his truth in that way. You go at it through the Bible. John Owen would push back further and say, really, this kind of very clever logical argument where if you're going to come at me with a special word like this, if it's already in the Bible, I don't need that special word. And if it doesn't agree with the Bible, I can't trust that special word. And if it's already in the Bible, all I need to go do is read my Bible. I don't need your special word because it's already in the Bible. If it doesn't agree with the Bible, I can't trust your special word because it goes against what God has said. So the emphasis, therefore, is to elevate the scriptures, to trust the scriptures, and to know the scriptures. This is the great struggle of the church today. We long for these magic bullet, magic pill, easy answers where we're given these special bits of knowledge instead of having to do the hard work of learning the scriptures. I remember the president of our denomination's seminary, better part of a decade ago when he was describing his average student saying the average seminary student that he had a decade ago, you know, good, godly, smart, wonderful, lovely, you know, lovely people, lovely Christians, the only problem is they didn't know their Bibles. So they knew their theology up one side, down the other, backwards and forwards. They just didn't know the Bible. It was a big problem for a minister to not know the Bible. And I would say, well, not just a minister. It's a problem for any Christian to not know the Bible because how will we hear the voice of God if we do not know his word? That's why I'm, my skin just prickles anytime I hear anyone in any circle. The Lord spoke to me apart from his scriptures. Man, my hackles go up. That's the voice Eliphaz takes here. And you see, the special revelation that he gets is going to be the problem as to what he pushes back uh, against Job. If you look at, at verses 8 and following, you get to see what he's done with this special word. Is he's presumed the mind of God by declaring right truth with wrong application. He takes right truth as the scriptures explain as as who God is, but then just grossly misapplies it. Sorry, that's not in verse 8. We're going to start back in 7. 
So here's my special word, in essence. Remember, who was the innocent person that ever perished? Since when did innocent people ever suffer, Job? When was it that the upright was cut off? I thought God preserved the upright. Isn't there a truth that you reap what you sow? Now, again, there's a sense in which all of those things are right and true biblically in a certain sense. The idea of reaping what you sow is certainly a a truth that's laid out in the Proverbs, but the point of the Proverbs, or Proverbs are, are, are usually true. You can't universalize a proverb. You can't apply the same proverb in every single situation and expect it to work out well. That's exactly why I believe the Lord puts right in there, do not answer a fool according to his folly. What's the next verse? Answer a fool according to his folly. Right back to back to show you, you can't make one of these simple things applicable in every single circumstance always all the time because in some circumstances you can't. You answer a fool according to his folly, you rub their nose in it and show them where they're wrong. Sometimes the fool blows up, sometimes the fool responds. What Eliphaz is doing here is taking this idea of, look, godliness is beneficial. And he's universalizing it so that it's then always true. And then specifically connecting it to financial wealth and prosperity and blessing. And that's such an interesting thing because, again, I'd love to say that we as an American church have not fallen prey to this. But, oh my goodness, have we not? I spoke about it last week in passing, but again, this idea of this open-door theology, the Lord spoke to me by opening a door. You heard wonderful southern sayings like, well, every time the Lord closes a door, he'll open a window. He didn't to Isaiah or Ezekiel. Didn't do that for any of them. Didn't do that for Jonah. That's not how he works, necessarily. Sometimes maybe, sometimes not. It's a presumption of our knowledge of God's motives and methods and means, how he's going to interact with his creation. Eliphaz is assuming that because Job has suffered, the reason for it is because Job has sown that in the past. And Job must have sown something evil in his past and therefore is receiving evil for it. I mean, certainly you can't argue with that, right? Look at verse 17. You can't argue with that, Job. Can a man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Can can a man genuinely be blameless? Of course you've done evil things, Job, and you've brought this on yourself. And, And to say otherwise, to make you a hypocrite because you know you're not perfect. You can see there, again, is there a biblical truth in that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely there's a biblical truth in that to say that, well, no one is perfect before God saved Jesus, except for me now. And you right now, we have the the record of Christ given to us. We don't have to worry. I mean, it's in essence what Eliphaz is doing is, would be the equivalent, the analog would be me standing up here today and saying, guys, I I had a revelation last night. I, I, I figured out why the roof collapsed. We've sinned in some way in the past. 
and God struck our roof down because of that. I, I hate to break it to you, I don't know that. <laughs> In fact, not only do I not know that, I'm going to lovingly suggest I cannot know that because God has not revealed it to us. In fact, actually, the heart of what Eliphaz is doing is really undercutting the promises of God. What I can tell you is this. What is God's relationship with his children? It's a loving relationship. It's a a covenant relationship where he has promised and he has promised blessing to them. So when I look at a roof collapsing, how am I able to look at it? Well, God does all things well. And he does all things for the good of his people and for his own glory. And that is the truth that I can cling to. I don't have to figure out some sort of kind of magic mumbo-jumbo to figure out why. No, I, I don't need to know that. God knows he's good and he's good to me. I don't have to overspeak on his behalf. You see, Eliphaz is actually a bit of a theologian. He's the one who probably has the the strongest theology of the three, and you see in his later speeches, too, he has a a fairly good understanding of a big God, that nothing gets in God's way. And so when he sees difficulty hit, he immediately says, well, God is good, and God is big, and God is powerful, so if there are problems, that's your fault. I, I, I love, again, what is he? He's skipping a big category there, isn't he? He's missing that Christ Jesus, even in his ministry, was perfected through suffering. Why would I be privileged to walk a different road than Jesus did? If we were to skip ahead to Bildad in chapter 8, if you were to go there, and you can turn over if you wish, Bildad speaks to Job again and and comes at the same sort of concept, but from a slightly different angle. Your ESV title there, Job should repent. Again, the idea, Job's done something wrong. But it's interesting, part of it for Bildad is because he doesn't have good categories. In fact, he starts out his speech by, uh, he's just listened to Job responding to Eliphaz, and he begins by saying, uh, you're a windbag, right? Verse 2, how long are you going to say these things? The words of your mouth will be a great wind. You're a windbag, Job. You talk all these words, but they don't mean anything. You're just, uh, your gums are flapping. I'm tired of listening. But what Bildad brings to the table is to say, look, there are two categories for people. There are good people, good men, and there are bad people. There are bad men. And good people get good things, and bad people get bad things. And that's the arrangement. And because you got bad things, well, guess what? We know what you are. You're a bad man. Because good people get good things, and bad people get bad things. It's this kind of direct equivalence of looking at circumstances and evaluating a man's character. He only has those categories. Good people get good things, bad people get bad things. And uh, we got to see this written large, and uh, maybe y'all didn't get to in these circles, but I did, what, when Katrina hit New Orleans, to watch how quickly some theologians were were comfortable jumping to, hey, uh, New Orleans is a a den of immorality. And we know that because Katrina hit it, it was because they're evil. 
And I'm in my head going, we had a great PCA pastor in downtown New Orleans who was doing an amazing ministry with folks there and watching people get converted left, right, and center. And guess what? It's all gone now. That entire ministry, that church plant is gone. Are we, are we comfortable saying because a bad thing happened to him, he's a bad man? Are we comfortable saying that? Because, I mean, that, that was said all, all over the place after Katrina hit. Well, bad thing happened. They must be bad people. And again, you can see it's this kind of hint in the back of our mind of this open door theology of let's look at our circumstances to evaluate God's priorities, to evaluate God's heart instead of looking at his word. Instead of going to his promises, instead of listening to what God says is important, it's us looking at circumstances to evaluate the same. If you were to turn over to chapter 11 here, Zophar dives in. Whereas Eliphaz is the theologian in the group, he refers to God's character the most. Bildad is, in essence, the traditionalist. He just says, look, this is how the world works. Good people get good things. Bad people get bad things. Zophar is a little bit of a different sort of character. He's what we might call the theorist. He's not really interested in people per se. He's interested in just how theories and ideas work. And the result of it is, as you might guess, in a counseling situation, he's an absolute jerk. Largely because he, he spends very little effort to make any sort of kind of personal connection to Job. <laughs> you can see, I mean, his opening sentence. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? <laughs> Job, you need to shut up. You talk too much. Great. Good job counseling, friend. Right? Ten kids lost, all his wealth lost, his health lost, sitting in the ash heap on top of a pile of trash. Well done. Should your babble silence men? Oh, wow, you are so kind. There's no warm and fuzzy here. There's no effort at trying to connect any sort of niceties to it. Instead, what he does, and this is more intriguing, I guess, in in kind of a, a new way, is he takes the theoretical ideas of guilt and pardon and applies them to every human problem. So that every experience becomes an experience of guilt or pardon. And you think, well, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Oh, it is. Because what that does is it it removes any sort of category for a person to do an activity that's just an activity. Everything becomes an exercise in legal judgment. Everything becomes an exercise in guilt. And again, we watched this happen. Uh, If you're my age, you watched it happen with the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and 90s. When people first began to speak about AIDS, you remember how it was talked about, at least in the States? These are guilty people. And they've been given a disease because of their guilt. Wow. I did not know sickness worked that way. Are we comfortable saying the same thing about the common cold? Oh, you got a cold. It's because you're guilty. 
Oh, because you've done something heinous. You got a cold. Oh, you did something really bad. You got strep. It, it, it removes any sense of, really, you really doing this. They're undercutting the curse. To have any sort of category of, look, the Lord cursed the world. Of course, all kinds of people are going to have all kinds of suffering. The roof is going to blow off periodically. Not because necessarily we did anything evil. It's because we live in a cursed world. And guess what? The one who cursed it is the all-powerful God. He does not do things halfway. When he cursed creation, it wasn't like, well, a little bit of a thing. He did a brilliant job at it. So much so that there are days where I'm like, man, Lord, could you have done it just a little bit less well? Your curse is extended to the entirety of uh, the fabric of creation. And it's intriguing how, in essence, that's what Zophar is doing. Is he's saying, let's look at all of creation and let's evaluate it from the perspective of guilt or not. And saying, every single human problem has to deal with guilt. Instead of saying, look, some human problems are just a result of the fall. Because God cursed us. And certainly that's Adam's cosmic guilt. That's his federal headship for us. But each individual problem isn't the direct result of individual guilt. You see, what ends up happening is these three friends end up forming this kind of coherent and cohesive idea that ends up saying at its core, God said good people get good things and guilty people get bad things. And you can immediately kind of sniff out the problem with that, can't you? What undercuts the gospel, doesn't it? It undercuts the gospel because what we end up having to say then is if we're going to believe that, what we have to say about the church is we are either the good people who are guaranteed to get the good things or we're the bad people who are hypocrites and hiding in this place where we should be the good ones. And instead we know God's heart. We know that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that the old would be gone and the new would come. So that we would be remade. We know that we wrestle with this body of death now, with creation groaning, longing for that new life, but it has not yet come. We know God's mind on the matter. Yet here they overspeak. And I would say just very quickly as we close, just a couple of very quick applications. One is, I think we do need to be particularly careful about even how we do this, presume God's mind. You realize these friends would have, what they've said would have been fine to Job if they had said, Job, could it be this? If they had said to Job, Job, could it be that you have been in sin and the Lord is disciplining you? You know what? That's fine. In fact, actually, we could close the sermon and be good with that. Their problem is that they come to him and said, God showed me this. You are in sin and therefore you have been punished. That's a legitimate question. When we do have bad things happen, I do think it is appropriate for us to pause and consider our life. Is this God's loving discipline to me? He loves me so much. I, I tell people, he loves us so much, he's not going to let us be fools forever. 
Sometimes he's going to correct that at death. Sometimes he corrects it through death. And sometimes he corrects before death. But to leave the door open, it could be, it could not be. It could be the Lord is disciplining somebody. It could be the Lord loves them so much that he's giving them a chance to be sanctified the way that Jesus was. It could be that he's showing off their good graces that he has given to them. It, it could be anything, but we don't want to presume. Secondly, I would say, as we do have to interact with these things, there's a, a great propensity for us to read our motives onto God. And so the best thing to do is to fill our mind, to jam it full of the promises of God. This is one of the great things that, in terms of counseling, that we, we wrestle through is, is we, our minds get so fixated on the why. Why is this happening? I'm miserable with this. I, I don't like that. I want this to change. I'm unhappy with this. Why is God doing this? Well, let's go meditate on his promises. Let's cram our minds so full of the good things uh, that we don't have room to begin to question And then lastly, I would end with this. Be on guard for that type of thinking that says, God told me this. Be on guard. Now, again, the most sophisticated versions of it never say that. But to undercut the role of the scriptures in our life and to undercut our love for the Bible... That's the voice of the devil, is it not? From the very beginning, did God really say? Are you sure about that? Is God's word trustworthy and true? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is trustworthy and true, for you are trustworthy and true. And we do confess. We do need forgiveness for the times that we have tried to read your mind to presume your motives, and to presume your plan. I confess that was my first thought when the roof blew off. I wonder what God's doing. Instead of, I know what you're doing. You're blessing your people. And you're more creative than I am, because I would never have done that. And so, Lord, we do confess our sin, and we ask that you would give us confidence in your perfect promises, for Christ's sake. Amen.